the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Should President Joe Biden be seeking a second term? Given his age and the fact that no one as old has ever sought the nation's highest office. E.J. Dion is a Washington Post syndicated columnist who has followed national politics for a really long time. He's going to join us to discuss the president's decision, the pros, the cons, and the questions. That's next on Detroit Today. But right now, the news from NPR. to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you decided to join us. I've taken myself out of the sport of political prognostication pretty firmly these days. I'm not really good at it, and politics is so crazy these days that it kind of seems pointless to guess at what's going to happen. But I can admit that I had a pretty firm belief that President Joe Biden would serve just one term. I thought that when he was elected the first time, and I haven't ever sort of wavered off that notion. So I was really surprised recently when he said he is going to seek re-election. I couldn't believe it, really. He's 80 years old. That's the same age as my mother, for instance. And as independent as she is, as healthy as she is these days, there's no way I could imagine her taking on the responsibility at that level, doing all the things that a president would need to do. Now, of course, President Joe Biden has been president for nearly three years now, and he's actually gotten a lot done. The huge spending on getting rid of the, the COVID pandemic and its aftermath, the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. He has a really long list of accomplishments already. And we're seeing the benefits of a lot of those things. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some real drawbacks to him having been president. He never did pass Build Back Better he hasn't been able to overcome the bitter political partisanship that defines us. And the high inflation that we've been suffering under is a lingering, serious problem. But again, with Biden's recent decision to run for reelection, I think there's an even bigger question to address. And that has to do with his age. If he wins reelection, He'll be 82. 
And if he serves the entirety of a second term, he'll be 86 when it's over. Now, I'm not an ageist, but again, I recognize that the president's job is one of the hardest tasks that exists. And this just leaves me wondering if it's such a good idea for Biden to be running for that position again. That's where we want to begin the conversation. Am I wrong to be questioning whether Joe Biden should be seeking a second term to the presidency? Why is he doing it? Why isn't the Democratic Party doing a little more soul-searching and questioning about his candidacy, given that there seem to be lots of other possibilities? One in particular works pretty closely with Joe Biden. Why shouldn't Kamala Harris, who is the vice president of the United States, be the candidate in 2024? A little later in the hour, we're going to talk a little more about local politics and oversight of local politics here in the city of Detroit and how that's changing right now. But before we get there, we do want to talk about Biden's re-election bid. And we've got a really great guest to help us think through this. E.J. Dion is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's a syndicated columnist for The Washington Post and a university professor at Georgetown University. He's also authored lots of books about politics over the years, and it is one of the nation's closest political watchers. Uh, EJ, welcome back to Detroit Today. Oh, a joy to be with you. Always great to be on Detroit Today. Yeah, great to have you here. So uh, I'm going to start with uh, your reaction to President Biden's announcement that he would seek a second term. As I said in the open, I was shocked. And and I am not, again, really into political prognostication anymore because I just don't see much point in it. But I had really believed he wouldn't do this. I, I, what, was your, what was your reaction? Well, first, I want to say I turned in my membership card in the prognosticators <laughs> union around midnight of election day 20. Uh, 16. So <laughs> I I agree with you that uh, prognostication ain't what it used to be, and it was always problematic. You know, listening to your lead-in, I had a, uh, a a thought that um, you know Joe Biden is a loyal church-going Catholic. Pope Francis is 86, which yes. would be <laughs> Joe Biden's age when he got out. So maybe Pope Francis is his role model here. <laughs> I I. And you know, hey, I you know, I'm a Catholic. I think he's a pretty good role model. He is. But <laughs> moving moving right along from that, um, you know, I've gone both ways on this uh, myself. There's a lot of me that thought for a long time that Biden um, would be well served as a one-term president. He could say, "I ran to save the country from Donald Trump, to save democracy, to get us on a better track." I've done that. He could cite all the stuff he did accomplish um, in his term of office. And he could have spent the last uh, year and a half or however, however you want to count it, um, saying everything I do now is just to prepare the country uh, to move forward after me. And I always thought that was a plausible route for him. But you raise a good question, which is why is it that on the whole, uh, particularly if you look at the Democratic Party's leadership class, 
Um, they're more or less at peace with Biden mm-hmm. making this decision. There is no Democrat, uh, major Democrat, uh, proposing to run against him uh, in the primaries. And you have to ask, well, why is that? If this were a real problem, someone out there would say, I ought to be running against uh, Joe Biden. Um, and I think the reason their support is twofold, um, well, really, it's the same fold, um, which is, I think a lot of Democrats look forward and say, if Biden didn't run, uh, there would be a potentially very divisive, ideologically divisive, as well as personally divisive, fight to succeed him that would dominate the news uh, from between now and whenever that fight uh, was settled. Um, and the party could tear itself apart. And I think Joe Biden has shown that he is the one figure who can kind of sit over the party's uh, divisions, who makes the center comfortable. But the left is not all that unhappy with him. They have some criticisms, but they look at what he did accomplish and say, yeah, we can go with Biden again. And so I think the first reason is that um, he, you know, he can keep the party together. And the second reason related to that is what you heard a lot is that Biden felt that he was the one guy who showed that he could beat Donald Trump. Now, granted, while his um, popular vote margin was really big, seven million votes, mm-hmm. and he was comfortable, comfortably ahead in the Electoral College, if you look down at the state level, um, it's a very small number of votes that made the difference between a majority and a minority of the Electoral College. Nonetheless, I think Biden sees himself as someone who can beat Trump. And although both of us agree we're not going to be prognosticators, if you look at the polling right now, it does look like Trump is going to be the nominee. And so I think that's why he did it. And the other thing is he likes the job. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think he wasn't ready to go. He spent his whole life trying to get this, get to the White House, and he wasn't about to give it up. That's not a substantive reason, I think, for the rest of us. But I think the analysis of where the Democratic Party might be if he didn't run uh, is why there's a fair amount of support for him. Uh, You know, there's actually strong support for his reelection in the party. Yeah. So. I want to talk about his approval ratings just for a second and and whether under different circumstances, if you if Donald Trump weren't uh, weren't on the political landscape and and that weren't uh, a, a likely opponent, I guess, for whoever was uh, going to be the Democratic nominee, 41 uh, percent. That's pretty low for this point in in a in someone's presidency and it it would i i feel like it would play a bigger role in in this discussion uh if not for the the particular circumstances but but talk about that 41% approval and and what it actually means to the chances for for reelection well i think the premise of your question is right that if trump did not loom out there I think there would have been a better chance that Biden would have said, "Okay, job done. Trump's gone Mm -hmm. and I don't run for reelection. So I do think Trump looming out there uh, played a role in his calculations. And I've asked Biden people the very question you just asked, which is look at his approval rating. What do you make of that? 
And what they argue, and I later went back and looked it up, and the, the, their claim on this is true, which is that the approval rating in all of our democracies isn't what it used to be. If you look at most of the major democracies, Biden's approval rating is higher than that of many other uh, incumbent leaders. I looked around at Canada, Germany, France, Britain, uh, a lot of the other democracies. And so there's just a lot of discontent uh, out there um, in general. Uh, what I think that the Biden people are concerned about um, is his rating on the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that the biggest wild card in this election, which is why you and I are smart not to make any predictions, um, is what will happen with the economy. We just saw the takeover of the First Republic Bank. Uh, will there be a, even a small recession um, is not good for um, a president. Um, and even when the economy is pretty good, you know, if you look at the numbers, the Economist magazine a few weeks back did a great cover story on how the American economy is, again, a model uh, for the world. People still don't feel great about it. I think there's a pandemic hangover. Uh, there, you know, there are still uh, people aren't feeling as secure, but you know, wages have been going up even after inflation. The unemployment rate is at an incredibly low level right now. And so I think their bigger concern is they would like his approval rating to bump up, and I'm sure they hope it will. Uh, but I think their bigger concern is getting um, you know better ratings on the economy that'll make swing voters say, you know what, um, I may think he's too old, but he's done all right. I'm doing all right. I'm going to vote for him again. And I think that's what they got to work on most. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with E.J. Dion. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post and a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture program at Georgetown University. We're talking about President Joe Biden and his recent announcement that uh, despite his age, I suppose, he is 80 years old, uh, he is going to seek re-election in 2024. If he wins, he would be 82. Uh, when that happens, he would be 86 when he would uh, finish uh, a second term. Uh, what do you think about that? What do you make of uh, President Joe Biden's decision to run a second time? But also, what do you make of the record he's put together since he was elected in 2020? Would you prefer another candidate on the Democratic side uh, next year? There are some folks throwing their names into the ring. No really prominent candidates yet. No one who seems to much threaten the president in that uh, in that primary. But who would you who would you toss into the ring if uh, if you were thinking about another name? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we can make you part of the program that way. Uh, I want to read a couple Twitter comments before we get to phones. Michael says, seems like part of the reason Biden's running again is that Dems are aware Trump is likely uh, the candidate on the Republican side and Biden is positioned to beat him. That we have allowed Trump to get to this point again is another topic and scary. Uh, Dragon Lady on Twitter says, uh, Joe Biden is boring and safe and dependable. He is not the man you date. He's the man you marry. Uh, really interesting take there. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? 
Good morning, Stephen. Uh, if the choice is between Trump and Biden, it's got to be Biden. But what scares me is that there are men who would never want a woman for president, and I think those are some of the black men who voted for Trump. Hmm. So if uh, Biden does have health issues that uh, – would force the vice president to take over, that might be a consideration. I don't know who I would uh, want. I like Elizabeth Warren. She's no spring chicken, and her voice is kind of shrill. And she needs to, to have you know, a, a voice like Mrs. Obama, something soothing, something <laughs> a lower uh, range. And she's not a beauty queen. <laughs> Bernadette, uh, I really appreciate uh, the take there on on all of this. You know the 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 position of the vice president in all of this, uh, EJ, I think is interesting, given that certainly if the president weren't seeking re-election, Kamala Harris would be among the the, the hopefuls uh, on the Democratic side. At the same time, uh, in practical terms, a second term for Biden might, I guess, set her up maybe better to be president at some point and uh, make it easier for her to get that. I, I, I don't know what your I'm, I'm curious about what your take is on, on her and where she fits into all of this. Well, first of all, Bernadette has a soothing voice, so maybe she ought to throw <laughs> she her ought to run too, in right? the ring. <laughs> that was great. I mean, she made, she made a good point about uh, Vice President Harris. I agree with your premise. I think Harris would actually be better off at the end of a second term. And for a couple of reasons, I think the Biden people are realizing now what they might have uh, realized uh, earlier, uh, which is uh, with Joe Biden's age, Kamala Harris is going to be an issue in this election because just the actuarial tables say there's a more, it's more likely that she might succeed to the presidency um, under an 80-year-old president than under a 60-year-old president. There's, people think that. There's nothing wrong with pondering that. And that um, I don't think they did enough to help her build up her own popularity in the country. And people can ascribe it to her shortcomings. I, I think Bernadette is right. I also think there's some uh, sexism and some racism underlying her, um, the negative side of her uh, rating. Um, but they, I think what the Biden people are now doing is saying this has got to be the Biden-Harris ticket. And I think you're going to see a lot of work done over, uh, you know, for the rest of uh, 2023 um, to have her improve her standing uh, with the public precisely because of that issue in the back of people's minds. Um, the one thing I don't agree with that I've seen written out there is Democrats don't have any alternatives to Biden. Mm -hmm. As Bernadette suggested, I think there are a lot of alternatives, potential uh, alternative Democratic candidates. I'm personally very interested in your Governor Whitmer, mm -hmm. um, you know, with her extraordinary victory uh, in the last election. Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Roy Cooper, Elizabeth Warren might um, run again. Uh, Bernie Sanders still has a following, although he is older than uh, President Biden. Um, but I think, and Vice President Harris, obviously. So I think there are a lot of potential strong, uh, potentially strong Democratic candidates out there. Um, but again, I think what is imperative for the Biden folks and for Vice President Harris is to have her poll numbers be somewhat better by the end of the year 
than they are now. So I think you're going to see a lot more of her doing interesting things between mm. now and the end of the year. Yeah. And to go to your point, if Biden wins and is successful, I think she will be at a much stronger position four years from now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with uh, E.J. Dion about President Biden and his decision to seek re-election. Also, we'll continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Jimmy in Birmingham and Robert Ann Arbor will be up next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. And you can always go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Even Joe Biden himself knows that people are looking a little askance at his run for re-election. At the White House Correspondents' Dinner last weekend, he leaned into it a little and made a joke about himself. Let's take a listen. Folks. I know a lot's changed in the press. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of you. This is not your father's press from 20 years ago. No, I'm serious, and you all know it better than I do. But still, it is absolutely consequential and essential. After all, I believe in the First Amendment, not just because my good friend Jimmy Madison wrote it, President Biden cracking a bit wise about how old he might be. Was he friends with James Madison, uh, the author of the Bill of Rights? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I think that was a sign over the weekend that uh, everyone is really thinking about what it means to have someone who is 80 years old say he's going to run for president again. That's what we're talking about today with E.J. Dion, who is a Washington Post syndicated columnist, a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture program at Georgetown University, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll include you that way. Let's go next to Robert in Ann Arbor. Robert, welcome to the show. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I think the the last uh, person, and I didn't catch their name, had a, had a great point. Uh, I do think uh, President Joe Biden is going to have to, in some ways, uh, kind of advertise or show some sort of shining characteristic of Kamala Harris, because I actually don't really agree with a lot of the other names they dropped. I, I don't think there's a lot of other Democrats, either in the cabinet or nationally, that have that same sort of, um, you know, just uh, branding hmm. uh, that really sticks out. Uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, I, I think some progressives are a little wary of Kamala Harris, I think they're frankly a little wary of Joe Biden, but I think especially with the 
uh, correspondence dinner last week and uh, some, some new marketing with a, an interesting T-shirt design on his uh, campaign website. I think he's trying to fix that. But uh, to, to me, as a, I, I think a younger voter, I'm, I'm wondering where I can find a, a sort of connection with the Democratic Party, hmm. considering uh, how old some of the kind of front-runner candidates are getting. I mean, I saw so some Robert, of them Bernie. Yes, yeah. please. So, so Robert, uh, EJ referenced Governor Whitmer in the, the beginning of the program. I, I wonder, since you live here in Michigan, what do you think of, of her maybe jumping to the national stage? I... Uh, I, I, <laughs> I have to say, uh, I think Governor Whitmer is in many ways, uh, a, a very attractive choice. I think she's gotten a lot of national attention for some, uh, honestly, un- really unfortunate reasons, uh, <laughs> that mostly have to do with, uh, you know, some, uh, terrible threats made against her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, policy wise, uh, I, I I hmm. I'm not sure uh what she what she's going to hold up uh what she uh would would advertise. I mean, I think she's personally a very very strong candidate. I just don't know if she has that sort of uh national appeal. Um Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe running for Senate would be a a better move first. I don't know. Yeah. Robert, I really appreciate the call and the and the perspective. Uh EJ talk about the roster, I guess, on the Democratic side that goes beyond Governor Governor Whitmer, who who I think does have quite a national profile, and and if she wanted, could probably make waves uh, in a Democratic primary. But but who else would you put on the list now? Um, let me just get to that. I want to say two things about what the caller said. One is I agree with what I think is his underlying premise, which is there's no way Joe Biden could dump. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris off the ticket, Vice President Harris. Sure. The cost of that would be extraordinary. Uh, and they know that. And that's why I think her position on the ticket is uh, unassailable for, you know, for this time around. Second, I was glad you uh, referred to that White House Correspondents Dinner speech. And I think this is an interesting thing to watch on the age issue, since that's what we're talking about, which is I think when Biden gives a major address like that one, he was really funny and good Mm -hmm. at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He was strong in his State of the Union message. I think where they got to amp him up, he's got to sort of reach that point on day-to-day regular announcements. That's where, you know, when he has, if you will, the high-energy Biden of the big occasion, I think begins to answer some of the doubts that you've Raised. I think he's just got to find his way to that level uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I am one of those people who thinks Governor Whitmer um, is a serious national uh, figure. If not this time, she's not going to run against Joe Biden um, for the future. And I think it's not only Governor Whitmer, but if you look at what's happened to the whole Democratic Party um, in um, Michigan, you know, Democrats, when they look around for candidates, mm-hmm. want somebody who's not only got a record themselves, but has a record of bringing in people uh, who can support a particular agenda. I think she's got that. I think when you look back at uh, the uh, 2020 race, I think um, two people um, who stand out from that race, even though he didn't do well 
in the primaries, Cory Booker is a very interesting figure, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, uh, Pete Buttigieg, whom I interviewed last week, is a uh, continually fascinating uh, figure. And then you do have Elizabeth Warren, as the earlier caller suggested. I'm not sure she's going to jump back in. Uh, Bernie Sanders will have a base in the Democratic Party as long as he wants to have a base. Um, I don't think he would win the nomination, but you know, Bernie will oh, it will be a voice in the party for a long time. And then I'm intrigued by some of the other governors. Uh, you know, Roy Cooper, um, uh, certainly Gavin Newsom in California would be interested in running. Governor Pritzker is very interested. So there are a lot of people out there. I, I just don't buy my friend, a conservative columnist, Ramesh Panuru, um, had a column today in the Post saying, uh -huh. you know, Biden's running because the bench is so weak. I just don't agree with Ramesh on that. And I think the bench will get stronger with time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. <laughs> You're up next. Hi. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, I like Joe, Joe Biden a lot. And uh, I, his age is a concern for everyone, Democrats and Republicans. And um, what I like about him is his calm uh, demeanor, his ability to unite people and his ability to work in the Congress to get legislation passed. Now, I think having Kamala Harris as a vice president is a, is a great choice. Um, we don't know a lot about her, but I don't see anything wrong with her. The thing is, I would like to see her with a, a running mate who's like Joe Biden, not necessarily old, but mm -hmm. someone from the Congress who can get things done, has a nice demeanor and all that stuff. And this is a weird situation because we don't normally have very old people running for president. So the, the question comes in, how does a potential uh, vice president who might very well assume that role showcase who she would have as a running mate no. or he? You know, do they do they kind of pal around or something like that? Is, how do we introduce Kamala Harris with somebody that might be able to uh, provide some of the things that, that Joe Biden has to offer? And I, I like Governor Whitmer a lot, but I, I don't see her in that role. Yeah, that's he doesn't a, have the background in Congress. Yeah, it's a great question, Robert. Uh, EJ, what's what's the answer to his question? You know, I got to say, I'm just sitting here. I'm still, as a married guy, I'm still smarting from the caller who talked about, uh, you know, the guys you marry, boring, safe, and dependable. <laughs> you know, we, do we have to be boring to be safe and dependable? Uh, but I, I actually think she made a good point, which is that, um, you know, there is a sense of, uh, you you don't you, people may worry about Biden's age, but be, partly because of the age and his campaign is going to try to figure out a way to play with this. They know he's dependable because they really know who he is from a long history. Um, and, you know, I, I've been around so long that I covered Joe Biden when he was the new generation candidate uh, <laughs> back in 1987. Yeah. But that means they know him in terms of the uh, caller, I think the last thing the Biden campaign wants to do is to have Kamala Harris suggesting a running mate uh, because that raises the whole <laughs> issue. That's the premise uh, of this show. But I do agree with him that, um, you know, I think that she does need to persuade, you know, Americans who are persuadable. The hardcore Republicans are never going to like Kamala Harris. This is all about the middle of the electorate. And I think there's one area where she can really campaign hard. And that's on a theme that I wrote about recently, um, which is I was really struck by both Biden's video and his first ad that he wants to run on freedom. Uh, 
That was the word he mentioned over and over again. And you've heard a lot of talk about that in Michigan uh, politics, that Republicans have felt that they had a sort of lock on the word freedom since the days of Reagan and Goldwater. And, you know, not only because of the abortion issue, but also LGBTQ issues, you know, in the case of Governor DeSantis using state power to go after Disney when they disagreed with him on Mm -hmm. issues, book bans. Um, I think that there is a way in which the freedom issue appeals to a lot of swing voters out there who may not be wild about Joe Biden about everything, but they don't like uh, the right wing of the Republican Party or where it's going on these issues. And I think you're going to hear a lot from not only Biden, but also Kamala Harris and the whole party about uh, the freedom issue. And I think that's one way she's going to try to build herself up. Yeah. Uh, Scotty on Twitter says if he gives them the best chance uh, to keep Trump out of office, then Biden 2024 and Biden 2028 and Biden 2032. So Scotty's all on, <laughs> the, on the president. There's side. a little constitutional problem with <laughs> that. Right. And that amendment wasn't written by Jimmy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, Boone on Twitter says Katie Porter for VP. That's an interesting uh, name we haven't uh, heard in the comments. By the way, political junkies keep an eye on California. <laughs> what a fascinating Senate race Absolutely. out there. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go uh, back to the phones here. Carolyn in Royal Oak, uh, you're up next. Carolyn. Hi. Um, my doctor for many years retired at age 93 and functioned very well up until then. Uh, he finally died at over 100. Uh-huh. Also, Grace Lee Bugs. Uh, was very active in uh, our area of Detroit and uh, lived until about 100. Uh, I think this is almost a cage of, case of ageism that they're using. Hmm. Uh, people are living longer, and some are operating mentally at a very high level. Yeah. No, Carolyn, you're absolutely right. And uh, and like I said, when I, we opened the show uh, I, I I don't want to be accused of of ageism here. My concern is about uh, is really about the rigor of the job and whether whether it makes sense at that age, you know, uh, to be able to to expect someone to do all of that. Uh, EJ, talk about the ways in which Biden has managed the age question and whether these concerns are really legitimate about, again, the rigor. I mean, this is, this is, if not the toughest job in the world, it's one of them and, and it's unrelenting. Does it make sense for someone uh, of that age to be expected to keep up with it? Uh, The answer I think is yes, people that age can keep up with it. I think the caller, I appreciated the call Uh, Not only because the older I get, the more I think wisdom is a very important (laughs) virtue, you know. Um, uh, So I'm with her on that. And I do think that if the opposition plays the age issue wrong uh, and in too ham-handed a way, there is going to be a kind of backlash uh, that she described. Um, But I think what Biden needs to do is be out there the way he was at the correspondence dinner, the way he was in the State of the Union message and just show people that he is up for the job. And I I think the biggest problem he has um, is are people who actually wish him well and worry each time he speaks, you know, is he going to give the other side fodder on the age issue? And I think as he has said, and I think he's right about this, 
um, there's only one way to settle this issue, which is to watch him. I think there'll be voters out there um, who just think that, as you said at the beginning of the show, some people are going to say he's just too old to run for re-election. But then what the Biden campaign has to do is get back uh, to uh, people's feelings. Yes, but is he safe and dependable, even if he's boring? I'm, I guess I'm going to canonize that <laughs> caller and by the, before the show is over. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, the safe and dependable part is key. And you know, again, a lot of the voters he needs are middle of the road kind of voters in suburban areas who really do not want a dangerous president. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, whatever people think about the age issue, I don't think anybody looks at Joe Biden as a dangerous figure. I think they might uh, look at some of his potential opponents on the other side that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I, I really want to ask you briefly about a book you published last year, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. That's such an interesting uh, idea. Talk about why that's so important to you. Well, God bless you for bringing up our book. Um, <laughs> you know, in our book, we argue that the U.S. should adopt a version of Australia's system. Uh, there are other countries that have it. It's been particularly successful in Australia of requiring everybody to cast a ballot. Uh, and I could go into details of the proposal. It's that fine is small. It's not you. It, there is no interest involved. It's easily waived. We also give in good libertarian fashion, if people really don't want to vote, they can apply for conscientious objector status. <laughs> but we think this system works because it it basically forces every state to tear down barriers to voting. Mm -hmm. That because everyone as a matter of citizenship is expected to vote, then the job of every state government is to make it as easy as possible for people to cast ballots. And with voting rights under threat in about half the states in our country, uh, we think saying to every citizen, uh, you know, the, one of the most basic jobs of citizenship is to vote. Um, we, you, you both sort of expand the obligations, basic, you, you expand a notion of citizenship, but you also fight the vote uh, suppressors. And in Australia, 97% of people are registered, 90% vote. I think it would increase the legitimacy of our democracy. And uh, if uh, people want to uh, look at the idea, we try to deal with arguments against this. There, This is floating around states now. My mm. colleague, uh, Miles Rappaport, mm -hmm. the co-author, is uh, out there pushing it through states. I think it's got a shot out in Washington state last I looked. So we're hoping for state experiments with this idea and local experiments where they can happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting pushback to the efforts in a lot of states to, to make it harder for people to vote and to disqualify more people uh, from being able to cast uh, ballots. It's kind of the other the other extreme. OK, uh, E.J. Dion, it's always really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining today. A real joy to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, we're going to stay on the topic of politics when we come back, but we're going to pivot to Detroit and talk about how political oversight works in the city and maybe how we might improve it. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Who watches over those in power? Who ensures that our tax money is appropriately spent and that leaders are accountable to the public? The answer to that question forever in our republic has been journalists. That's who makes sure that public officials do what they're supposed to do and who calls them out when they don't. But as money for journalism becomes harder to come by, so too have our journalists. That means we have fewer watchdogs than we used to. It also means that the resources for the journalists that we have left are, well, a bit more meager than what used to exist. For decades, for instance, the city's large daily newspapers and lots of other smaller newspapers had press offices at City Hall, where reporters could do their work close by to members of the city council and to the mayor. There are really legendary stories, of course, about the things that have happened in and around those offices and stories that emerged specifically because journalists were right there in City Hall watching what our elected officials do. But the Detroit Free Press has now decided to move out of City Hall altogether to save money. It's one more retreat in the diminishing narrative of the press in our city and all around the country. My old friend Mike Elric, who works at the Detroit Free Press, wants the city to do something about this. He recently wrote an article asking city officials to open a new press room in City Hall near the mayor's office on the 11th floor or near the city council on the 13th floor. Either way, it would help journalists be more effective in holding political actors to account. To talk about the change that's happening with the free press and his idea to counter it, we've got Mike with us. He is a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy-winning winning investigative reporter. He's also host of ML Soul of Detroit podcast. Mike, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it's, it's great to be with you. And we've been in City Hall with a press room since Joe Biden was 10 years old and playing stickball (laughs) in Scranton, Pennsylvania, probably with a ball of rags because they hadn't invented the baseball yet. And now we're getting ready to move. It's not really a matter of cost. And, uh, you know, obviously we'd like to save some money, but the real issue is for the past 13 years, we've been exiled in the basement. I was going to say, they put you out of where we used to be that's at right. uh, City Hall, and the, the, it's been in the basement. That was a snub, I felt, to uh, open this, and this is, uh, this is a, a further move away from accountability. Absolutely, and I remember when I first started covering the mayor and city council back in 2000, Quinn Kleinfelter would prepare some of his stuff from WDET's offices on the 11th floor of City Hall. This was a standard place for reporters to congregate. We would meet sources. We'd review documents. We would have newsmakers drop by. And we also saw the comings and goings on the mayor's floor. You'd see city council leaders coming in. You'd see department heads. And when there was trouble, it was almost like the reverse of when you saw animals fleeing from the forest (laughs) because they detected danger. You would see department heads and key administration officials run into the mayor's office and that gave us a real sense of what was going on in city government because these are not the things that city government tends to announce but these are the only things people know about because we are eyewitnesses and we've been blindfolded in the basement for the last 13 years but it's time for us to be restored to our rightful place. Yeah, yeah. So you're recommending that city hall keep this space open in the building for journalists. How would that how would that work? Very simply. All they need to do is give us a little room, 
We'll decorate it. We'll occupy it. It's that simple. The U.S. District Courthouse, where you could argue there's a lot less need for reporters because there aren't that many cases that are of considerable public interest, has a large, well-appointed press room available. This is standard operating procedure in government buildings throughout America, throughout the world. And for us to have a, a government, to have city council members who have been in trouble on a regular basis, to have mayors who have been in trouble, not give us a place where we can keep an eye on things. Watchdogs can't do their jobs when they're locked in the basement. It's time for us to be on the front step. Yeah. What do you think is the likelihood that uh, city council or the mayor might actually do something like this? Uh, are, are they open to the idea that, hey, this matters and this matters for openness? We don't use the word openness an awful lot with, uh, with city government in the city of Detroit. Well, city government does. They're always talking about transparency. <laughs> well, here's an opportunity, a gift-wrapped opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. But, uh, but the answer is, is twofold, Stephen. The, uh, today, the uh, chance is 0%. But if we come together and we speak with one voice and we make it clear that we think this is important and this will help restore our trust in government, that if public officials prove they have nothing to hide by saying, come and take a look, I think it can happen. And I'm circulating a letter among leaders of the Detroit news community, I should say, the news community in Detroit, because at the Free Press, we don't like to put the words Detroit and news right next to each other too often. <laughs> Always careful about but, that. Uh, right. But I think if we all come together and are heard, there is a chance that they will create a space for us because this is something that's important. And it's important for city leaders too when people say, you know, what are you guys doing? What are you working on? When we're there, we tell stories. When we were on the, 13th, uh, the 11th floor, excuse me, the mayor's floor, it was not uncommon for reporters to churn out half a dozen stories a day. Mm -hmm. Well, now when you basically make people unwelcome in your house, they don't want to come. And when they don't come, they don't tell people what you're doing, even on those occasions when you wish they would help you get the word out. So, so I want to talk just a little about how journalism has changed in the city over time. Uh, you know, both you and I came up at a time when the bureaus at City Hall and, and other places were... Uh, those were prime spots. Everybody wanted to get to those places. We wanted to, to be those those reporters. It's changed an awful lot, uh, partially because of the trouble with funding in the business, but but also just because uh, the, the the way people get information has changed so much as well. Uh, talk about how different it is in places like City Hall today than it used to be. So when you and I started at the Free Press, the Free Press had a bureau in South Africa. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we don't even have a bureau in Macomb County anymore, partly because when we started at the Free Press, there were over 300 reporters. Now we have less than 100. The business model for journalism is, is broken, and we're trying to stitch something together to keep telling the news before we, before we run out of money. But yes, City Hall, that was a prime beat. If you were not going overseas or to the Capitol or Washington, you wanted to be in what we then called the City County Bureau. First of all, it meant that you, were, uh, you had a great beat, lots of news. It meant that you had a cool office, the 11th floor. I remember looking out my window and watching the CompuWare headquarters coming up. Mm -hmm. So I could see Detroit's resurgence being built right in front of me. But it also meant that if you got on the elevator and the mayor got on the elevator, you could ask the mayor a question. You could run up the stairs. You didn't have to take the elevator. You could run up the stairs two floors to get to city council in five minutes if something was happening. This fostered an environment where you had your best and brightest competing to get to city hall. 
And when they got there, they were competing hard to get their stories on the front page. Uh, the diminution of the number of reporters and basically the exile in the basement has made City Hall less desirable of a posting, but we still are sending our best people there and we're still expecting them to do their best work. We're just trying to take some of those obstacles out of the way. And it's really not to save the free press money. It's to try and serve our readers and the people of Detroit as best we can. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people assume that there might be less interest in what goes on in City Hall, and that's what's being reflected in the journalistic kind of retreat from it. But I'll, I'll just share a, a quick experience that I've had with Bridge Detroit, which is a nonprofit news source that uh, I, I, I am affiliated with here in the city. Uh, one of our reporters there, Malachi Barrett, recently started a weekly newsletter that is just about the issues that really matter to Detroiters that come up at city council. And the popularity for that is just off the charts. People really do want to know more about what happens down there. That should be as much motivation for the council and the mayor to create a, 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 a real press room again uh, as anything else. Malachi Barrett's work for Bridge Detroit is fantastic. If you're not following his city council notebook, it is must-read material. Christine Ferretti at Bridge Detroit, you guys know the importance. You've worked out of City Hall. Malachi's new to town. If we could post this young guy up in City Hall, imagine how much more news he could produce. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying he's not producing a lot because he's doing a tremendous job. But this is not only a place for him to create a base of operations, but it's a place for people to come see him to get to know him, to get to know reporters, and to, to develop some of that familiarity where we can have some of these conversations where we can say, I just want to talk to you about this before it's new so that we understand each other, so that we take away some of the stigma of there's the hunted and the hunters. Really what this is, is there's the newsmakers and then there's the news disseminators. This is a symbiotic relationship, but around 2010, it became, it became uh, I don't know what happened, but it became a, a dysfunctional um, relationship and and it's it's about to end and and I yeah. think everybody who hears my voice knows that when we get out of City Hall we will not be able to get back in so we have got to find a way to stay and we will miss an awful lot of stuff if that happens uh, Mike Elric always great to catch up with you thanks for being here with us on Detroit today it's always nice to spend the morning with a Pulitzer Prize ah, that's right same <laughs> all right that's gonna do it for us today come back tomorrow when we're gonna talk with Death Sex and Money podcast cast host and a sale about mental health problems plaguing people all across America. This is 1019 WDTFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.